because of this Catch-22 background, we, we really think it's going to be a very volatile year. I think more can happen without the ECB panicking about a fragmentation. What we see at the moment is almost a sort of game of chicken between the markets and the Fed. Hello. In an eagerly awaited update, the Fed signaled that it will soon be appropriate to raise interest rates, adding to speculation of a hike coming in March. Striking a hawkish tone, Fed Chair Jerome Powell didn't set out how fast or how high rates would rise, as it battles to rein in the US's highest inflation in almost 40 years. Against a backdrop of elevated inflation and a strong labor market, our policy has been adapting to the evolving economic environment and it will continue to do so. After nearly two years of unprecedented stimulus, all eyes are on what central banks will do next to tame inflation while also supporting growth as we embark on the road back towards normality. But what will that path look like and what are the implications for investors? I'm Carsten Röhmheld, filling in for Richard Edgar, and this is Rich Pickings, Fidelity's Asset Allocation Podcast. I'm joined today from London by global economist Anna Stubnitska and multi-asset portfolio manager Charlotte Harrington. And dialing in from Hong Kong is Matt Quave, also a portfolio manager on Fidelity's multi-asset team. Thank you all for joining me. Hi, Carsten. Hello. Hello. Great to have everyone back at the start of the year. We have a bit of a tradition to ask our first guests about their New Year resolutions. So one of my resolutions has been home improvement, as you can see right behind me. So I've been putting together quite a few shelves in the past three weeks. So Anna, would you mind to let us in on your New Year resolutions? Yeah, mine is very simple. Just to find uh, some more time for myself and do things that I like and preferably on my own. That's a very good one. Charlotte, uh, what about you? I think I probably should try and do uh, a better job at uh, marrying this sort of working from home and working from the office, uh, flexi working, which uh, this year is probably going to be more important than last. Yeah, that's difficult for all of us. Matt, what do you have in mind? I am going to do more sailing and hiking and it's going to crescendo towards a race called the four peaks race in hong kong which is where you run up and down four mountains and sail between them so that's going to be awesome wow that's very impressive so um uh, very good resolutions uh, we will come back to them and check on them in the remainder of the year but let's start the discussion here um, Anna, there are a number of quite different dilemmas facing governments and policymakers around the globe as we start the year can you take us through where we currently find ourselves Indeed, we have identified uh, three big dilemmas that we think we need to focus on and uh, something that will drive macro and markets this year. The first one is uh, uh, the uh, central bank policy dilemma, fiscal policy dilemma. So um, a dilemma related to withdrawing policy accommodation uh, that many countries uh, are facing now. And in this respect, uh, of course, we have the central banks that are uh, trying to contain a very hard very sticky inflation um, and at the same time not to hurt uh, growth too much and to prolong this cycle as much as possible. So this is one dilemma. Uh, the second one uh, we think is very important and this is the theme 
uh, carrying over from last year is the China policy dilemma. Um, and here we're looking at the Chinese authorities um, to, um, uh, to see how much easing uh, they might allow uh, to help uh, avoid potentially hard landing this year for the economy, but at the same time, uh, while they're keeping their eye on those longer-term structural issues, um, uh, common prosperity, uh, reducing leverage in the system, etc. So again, this is more of a sort of short-term easing versus longer-term uh, tightening. Um, that is the dilemma that, that the Chinese policymakers are facing, and. Um, how they solve this dilemma in a way, how they decide to go about it will determine the macro outcomes in China and beyond. Um, and uh, the third policy dilemma, which is uh, which seems very long term, but actually it's already playing out now, and particularly in Europe, um, that is climate change uh, and the transition to net zero. So we know that, that the net zero transition um, is going to be costly, particularly uh, in the shorter term as countries um, uh, reduce their carbon emissions uh, and um, switch to different uh, sources of um, energy. Uh, and uh, the very high energy prices that we've seen over the past few months, and particularly in Europe, uh, are partly a result uh, of this very ambitious green transition that Europe has been pursuing. And so the dilemma is, uh, here, how to achieve that optimal transition path um, without uh, negative consequences of very high inflation, which is playing out now, which can potentially lead to social unrest, um, and at the same time, uh, how not to hurt growth, uh, but to achieve that transition as quickly as possible, or at least by 2050. So quite a few dilemmas here. Um, Matt, with all this in mind, where does this leave our cross-asset outlook and Fidelity's global asset allocation view? Sure. So I'll start with the good news, which is we're not calling the end of the cycle. We're still mid-cycle. And so in general, in mid-cycle, equity is still a better place to be. But because of this catch-22 background, we, we really think it's going to be a very volatile year. So we've kind of taken down a little bit of uh, high yield risk this month. We remain neutral equities and we really see the opportunities in places like China where the stimulus is going in the other direction and we could see a lot more, a lot uh, better outlook for equities. But it's a rather cautiously risk on view, it sounds like. So Charlotte, is there an argument to being reducing exposure to equities even here? We've obviously seen some quite dramatic sell-offs already in the first few trading days of the year. Yeah, I mean, I think um, sort of the, the comments Matt made about this kind of pickup in volatility is is something to be be aware of, and and obviously that's going to feed into sort of timeframes when it comes to to positioning. But you know, the, the the sort of risk backdrop here is is a little bit challenged because we talked a bit about stagflation last last year, uh, but Q one this year makes last year look like stagflation light. Uh, and so really what we need to see is um, is some slightly less hawkishness from the central banks uh, and a kind of comfort that, that growth isn't going to slow too much. 
uh, and, and that's at the moment uh, not not really particularly visible and I think that's what's causing some sort of near-term jitters in the risk asset markets. Yeah, you mentioned the, the US central bank, uh, rightly so. So it supposedly plays the most critical role of all. So how do you assess the Fed's policy impact on markets right now? I think, you know, the, the, the channel here that, the, that we'd be focused on is, is on real rates uh, and the sort of, at the moment, markets are pricing in close to five hikes from, from the Fed this year. Uh, and so that that has pushed real rates higher and that's been been sort of more challenging for particularly the interest rate sensitive parts of the, the market. So the, the sort of growth tech stocks uh, in particular. Um, but but the question for us is, is what happens next? Will the Fed achieve all of those hikes or not? Uh, and and I think that's that's the key focus. Anna, um, have your expectations changed following the latest Fed announcements? Certainly, in the last meeting, um, the Fed uh, uh, came across, or Powell, Chairman Powell, came across as quite hawkish. Uh, in fact, uh, probably as hawkish as he could get at this point in time. Um, and the markets are now pricing um, around five hikes for this year. And I think... Uh, um, the Fed has uh, inflation right now as its sole focus. They're happy uh, with the labor market progress. The labor market is very tight. Uh, and I think they are uh, seeing signs of, of that persistency in inflation that we have been talking about for a few months now um, in wage growth, in housing, uh, in energy prices. Um, and so they are uh, very much set on this quite hawkish trajectory. And we actually think that this narrative, this hawkish narrative, will run for some time. Uh, financial conditions remain exceptionally accommodative. And uh, so in this environment, we think that the Fed's tolerance uh, to uh, market, small market corrections or volatility or tightening of financial conditions is actually quite high. They want to see tighter financial conditions. And that's why we do think they will proceed uh, with hiking starting in March. Um, and perhaps they, they might well do three or four hikes and some uh, quantitative tightening as well this year. But the path from there beyond that uh, is unlikely to be as aggressive. And this is where we are skeptical and where we think the Fed will have to make a U-turn and become more dovish. Uh, but before that, we, we need to see more tightening. We need to get there first. That's a good point, as the market seems to subscribe to the more hawkish notion right now. So, Charlotte, what do you think needs to happen for the Fed's tone to soften? And how are you positioning to take account of that uncertainty? Yes, I think that there's a couple of things here. There's uh, forward guidance and then there's what the Fed actually do. Uh, and, and as Anna's already said, the, the actual communication from the Fed in terms of what Powell said in the press conference was extremely hawkish. Um, but at the moment, they're still um, doing QE. So, so they haven't actually moved. And clearly, they're guiding towards a more hawkish path. Uh, but what we see at the moment is almost a sort of game of chicken between the markets and the Fed. Uh, who's who's going to force the other to back down? So I think there are a few things to think about here. Uh, the first thing is, is financial conditions. Uh, do we get enough of a sell-off to, to make the Fed think they've, they've done enough? Uh, the second thing is the fundamentals. And here I'd point to things like the housing markets where mortgage rates have risen a lot. 
uh, historically that's been associated with a with a slowdown. I'd also point to China, where the kind of the growth impulse there is is really largely absent, even though they are starting to stimulate. Uh, so I think there's, those are the two channels that potentially uh, could could see the Fed sound a little bit softer in their communication. Uh, but but of course that that's a, a sort of a process, as it were. Everything seems to be quite data dependent, so they will watch the data as we go. So, Matt, is there anything else we should be thinking about in view of you with regards to Fed policy? Well, I think in terms of overall market exposure, um, the, the world that Anna describes in 12 months' time sounds like a pretty good one for equity still. Um, you know, if bond yields can't go too high, um, if, you know, if, we, if we get there, earnings can still continue you know, equities can go higher over that time. Uh, the issue is how do we get there? Uh, you know, and so something's got to take the Fed off off the path that it's in. Um, and so, you know, the, the, it, it can be uh, growth, but it can be the market forcing it there. So I think, you know, in terms of volatility, we're going to see a lot more volatility this this year. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if we went down quite a lot and up quite a lot this year as the market kind of tries to adjust to this new normal. And so what can you do with portfolios in that regard? You can be nimble um, and you can look for those medium term opportunities, uh, whether it be areas of Asia that can benefit from the opening up or, or areas like China, like we've discussed. I actually I think I think this is an interesting point, because when you look at uh, sort of markets and, and, and the sort of narrative at play is that it's sort of almost been a world of U.S. exceptionalism, uh, that the Fed are justified in their hawkishness because the U.S. data has been so strong versus everywhere else. And I think if that came to be challenged, then the point that, that Matt raises around a kind of rotation, whether that be within the equity market, out of some of uh, these uh, things like banks that have benefited from higher rates, or whether it be into other parts of the world, uh, which have sort of lagged because because everyone's preferred the US. And Charlotte, you, you mentioned real rates before now. So what do you think could change if real rates really went um, a lot higher from here? No, I think, you know, that would cause quite a lot of disruption if they if they went all that far, particularly if they go very quickly. Uh, so you have a sort of a combination of a, a level and a speed effect. Um, I actually think we're probably closer to the end of this real rate rise than the beginning. Um, but I would have said that before the Powell press conference and that would have been wrong. So uh, so but that but that still, I think, is 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 where I stand on it. We actually think that this is one of the most important uh, indicators, uh, market indicators to watch and something that will trigger, will likely trigger that uh, turn that I was talking about earlier from the Fed when real rates are shocked potentially to zero or into the neg into the positive territory from uh, being deeply negative for some time. Um, uh, this will be uh, problematic for markets to digest and uh, for the economy as well. Um, and so when we look at um, uh, terminal real rate pricing or 10-year real rates in the U.S. Last time uh, when they got to 1, above 1%, uh, back in 2018, uh, there was a big problem. And um, we think that that threshold might well be lower today, given uh, market sensitivity, given the debt burden in the system. It's hard to say where it is. Uh, but we think uh, real rates in the positive territory um, will be hard to digest. Um, and again, that's the, the sign that we are looking at for markets 
and for the Fed, for central bank narratives to turn. And it would be far less uh, positive for, for risk assets, I suppose, yeah. Yeah, I was just going to say, it's worth um, looking at the bond market here as well, because what we've seen is throughout this sort of um, hawkish repricing is, is the curve flattening. So the bond market's telling you that the Fed might be making a mistake. Um, and I think that's something to watch uh, as, as we go forward. Very, very much. I think th that point about the back end of the curve inverting would be the ultimate signal that, that the Fed's going too far. Um, also, they care a lot more about credit spreads than equity markets. So, you know, with this debt burden, they want to keep the credit markets open. If, if the credit markets widen too much, companies can't finance themselves. They can't issue the bonds to service that debt burden. And so, you know, the Fed will be watching that a lot more. Um, and, and so if those blow out, you could well experience some kind of Fed put, but probably at a much lower level than we've seen previously. For the time being, the equity markets have reacted much more severely than the bond markets, of course. Um, let's talk about the ECB, Anna. Um, what, what can we expect from the ECB? Will they follow suit in that more hawkish path? What are the implications for the EU periphery in that case? Yeah, we actually think that the ECB uh, is probably the main um, uh, central bank that has the potential to surprise hawkishly uh, this year. Uh, and markets have already started pricing in uh, some hikes. I think there's one hike for this year and more hikes uh, for the next couple of years. Um, again, it seems quite aggressive to me, but when you look at expectations from forecasters, from economists, um, nothing is expected to be done at least until later in 2023. And we agree with that, but what we think is that um, the ECB might start um, laying the ground and preparing the markets for eight hikes uh, starting in 23. And for that, uh, they would need to upgrade the inflation forecasts. Uh, this is one of the conditions um, that uh, they have set out uh, for rates to be considered, uh, for rate hikes to be considered. So in the March meeting especially, we'll be watching um, ECB inflation forecast for 23 and 24. If they go to target of 2% or above 2%, uh, that means the ECB um, is potentially getting ready uh, to hike rates. So No policy action for this year, but laying the ground for next year. Again, how far they can go is questionable. And I think that we will have to see what happens by that time to financial conditions and markets overall. Um, but of course, the ECB is also facing um, a, a very complex set of constraints. Um, and the periphery, as you said, is one of them. And so that um, uh, the, watching the spreads, managing the spreads is obviously something that the ECB uh, is very much concerned about. And we think that perhaps in the current environment where inflation is high, growth is above trend, the ECB's tolerance for repricing of that peripheral risk premium in terms of spreads might be higher again. Uh, so if we do see some term premium pricing, uh, we've seen some widening in um, Italian spreads versus Germany, um, but not too much. And I think more can happen without the ECB panicking about uh, fragmentation. 
quite remarkable to see the People's Bank of China embark on the opposite course to the more hawkish Fed and shift gears to stimulus mode. It seems to me they are setting their own agenda, at least from what you can tell regarding their most recent official statements. Matt, you're, you're sat in Hong Kong. How do you see the policy situation there and what are the implications? Well, China uh, is battling with certain weak areas of its economy. And it's also got a battle on in 2022 trying to keep a zero COVID policy with the transmissibility of the latest variant. That's a real, really could be a struggle this year. Um, and but and they really don't have the capacity of hospitals to just take a, a more Western approach to it. There are five times less hospitals and five times more people in China. So we would generally expect them to push through this year in that regard. But that's not necessarily a bad thing for markets in China. Uh, we've started to see the stimulus come through, both on the fiscal and the monetary side. And we're starting to move into more of an implementation uh, element on the regulatory side. And so this can be an environment when actually Chinese assets that have sold off and are at really good valuations re-rate higher, uh, given the backdrop. What impact could China's zero COVID policy have on growth, in your view? Well, that's going to be very variable this year. We could well see a number of rolling uh, lockdowns across the country. As I say, it's this balance between the government will very much want to get very close to 5%. And you know, if that is not... Um, the, the, the policy side of that uh, can balance off against the kind of natural growth. So if we actually see weaker growth, we're going to see more policy. And these things are going to net off to somewhere around the four-handle 5% mark. So actually, uh, you know, downside from, let's say, more rolling lockdowns can mean more policy support, which generally helps investments in China. And Charlotte, when we look at the different approaches from different countries towards the virus, how much is that dominating your country views? So I think here... Um China is the real wild card when it comes to COVID policy because they really stand out as being the, the place that are so far indicating they want to stick to this quite strict zero COVID policy. The question is, firstly, if, if that continues, um, that's going to be a, a negative on the sort of services consumer side of the Chinese economy. But there also is, is the kind of relationship to the rest of the world and that really feeds through in supply chains and what we saw last year was um, issues with supply chains as a result of covid and also as a result of just the extremely strong demand uh, and i think for the perspective of both markets and the fed and, and the data it's going to be important to see uh, that not repeat itself where i take some comfort is that the inventory picture in other parts of the world now is actually really um, quite healthy. Uh, if you look at Q4 GDP, uh, you see that inventories were, the, the build in inventories was the largest since Q4 87, excluding the lockdown. So I think that does mute the impact of supply chain disruptions out of China because people have already got stock. Um, but I do think that's still a, a bit of a wild card and something that, that's going to be important to monitor. It's possible that they ease up on that zero COVID policy after the Winter Olympics, but, but we have to wait and see, really. Given your views on China, where does that leave you with your preferences now for the rest of the world? I think from an investment standpoint, you know, we need to take into, things like, into account things like valuation. Uh, and China, 
The slowdown in China is pretty well known in terms of the, the kind of the fundamental data. And as we've already said, the Chinese authorities are now somewhat more concerned about that. And they're more likely to incrementally ease than they are to tighten, which is very different to the rest of the world. So actually, the emerging markets uh, seem like a, a pretty good place to, to be on a relative basis at the moment, just given what's already been factored in. Um, that doesn't mean we might not have a, a few months of sort of um, bumpiness along the way. But in terms of the kind of broader view, we'd expect better data to come through out of China as this year kind of progresses. The regional view is an interesting one, but actually one of the biggest things we've seen this month is the rotation between value and growth as well. And I think we should touch on that. Uh, we've seen a huge value rally uh, and growth really suffer. Some of, the, some of the areas of the US market that have been performing incredibly well over the last few years has given up a lot of ground. Uh, and this provides opportunity. I think... In terms of the value rally, it's very much tied to the whole story of the Fed uh, tightening, uh, and that could continue somewhat, somewhat, but it's unlikely to be a multi-year uh, change in terms of still working with that movement of, we think that, the, that there are going to be less hikes this year, and, and when that gets priced into markets, it's quite likely that that rotation will, will reverse at some point. And the sell-off in some of these growth areas really uh, gives good opportunity. For instance, the stocks that are very linked to climate change, the ones that uh, Anna was, was talking about, the things that are going to solve the, uh, and, and, and help our way out of uh, reducing our, our carbon footprint, areas like building insulation, uh, electric vehicles, these have been beaten up pretty hard in the last month and offer good entry points. I mean, if you say um, we're on a Fed interest rate hiking cycle, so why would the value rally then at some point uh, stop and, and revert back to growth? What, what's your view there? At the moment, the bond yields price a certain number of hikes, five this year, more afterwards. And ultimately, we don't think they're going to get to that number of hikes and then they're going to have to be more dovish. So, you know, the long end of the curve has got to remain relatively well, uh, you know, kind of anchored and stable uh, and that will ultimately mean that some of these stocks on the growth side that have good earning stories uh, can continue probably some of the the, the stocks that are non-profitable and aren't good stories and were pumped up that's what where it's going to really suffer i think another way to talk about this and this is sort of something that some of the equity pms have, have expressed is the the, the sell-off we've seen to date has been all about inflation and the worries around the central bank's reaction to that. What we haven't seen quite so much of is a growth scare. Uh, and that's why the value stocks have really done so well, because people still think growth is going to be quite strong and higher bond yields actually are, are kind of beneficiary of that sort of rotation and that theme. If we were to see more of a concerns on the growth side of things, then you'd expect that that rotation that Matt has just um, spoken about to come through with potentially quite a lot of force. Uh, and, and it's most stark in the US equity market, given the kind of market cap of some of these very large growth sensitives. You talked quite a lot about inflation, one of the key themes for this year. There's been a lot of discussions on how sticky it's likely to be. Matt, how is this playing out in allocations? Well, the, the stickiness of inflation really doesn't make uh, government bonds are good long-term investment. 
Uh, the, the whole move up in general um, level of inflation means that over the medium term, we still think the, the outlook for, for such um, investments isn't great. So you still really need to think about the defensive part of your portfolio uh, and thinking about different ways to defend, whether that's um, using commodities, whether that's using different currencies, other ways to defend that, that part of your portfolio. In terms of uh, the inflation path, yes, it's more sticky, but it's also about the rate of change of inflation and what policy comes with it. And it comes back to this idea that whilst inflation can be a little bit higher, um, if policy remains quite quite loose, you can invest off the back of that. So you know there could well be good entry points for gold coming up in the coming months. There'll be better um, opportunities in, in, in emerging markets, but you've really got to play that cycle of where the policy uh, leads us over the year. Following up on this theme, earlier I asked energy analyst and portfolio manager Paul Gooden for his insight on how price rises could feed into wider concerns on inflation. So Paul, what kind of recovery are we seeing in oil demand as we emerge from the pandemic? So I think oil demand should recover to pre-COVID levels later this year as economies continue to relax mobility restrictions. If you look at some of the high-frequency data, it's already above pre-COVID levels. So for example, in November, US vehicle miles traveled rose above the pre-COVID levels for the first time. Um, aviation is a notable laggard. Um, global aviation demand is still around 15% below pre-COVID. But I think there's likely to be a jailbreak phenomenon as soon as restrictions allow, uh, whereby folks are you know, just very keen to, to escape their bubble uh, and go traveling. And, and added to that, you've got record natural gas prices in Europe and Asia, and that's resulted in some gas to oil switching. Um, so you know, this improving demand picture is one of the key drivers behind the oil price rally that we're seeing at the moment. So demand seems to be very healthy. What else is driving higher oil prices and how do you see things developing from here? While demand for oil is recovering, supply is constrained by a lack of investment. So the oil industry has, if you look at the CapEx spend, it's more than halved since 2014. Um, the industry is showing more capital discipline and shareholders have pressured companies not to spend much on new oil and gas projects because you know, an energy transition is underway, which will see us using significantly less hydrocarbons in the future. But it's called a transition for a reason. It doesn't happen overnight. And peak oil demand is still a few years away. Now, if you look at oil inventories, they're pretty low, about 10% below the five-year average on a day-to-demand basis. And OPEC spare capacity is also pretty low, about 2 million barrels a day by the middle of this year, um, which is not much in a global market of 100 million barrels a day. So this combination of low inventories and low spare capacity is driving higher oil prices in 22. Now, I don't buy into the super cycle thesis. There's plenty of oil out there and US shale will return to more than a million barrels of annual growth in 23 um, if oil prices stay, stay at this level. Um, my base case is we return to sort of the mid 60s in a few years time. Uh, but in the meantime, oil prices are well supported um, and there's always a risk of a super spike if we get a supply outage. Uh, and that would see oil move firmly into triple digits, um, as that's the level that would be needed to curtail demand and, and so balance the market. So how do you see these price rises feeding into broader inflation concerns? Hydrocarbons transport most of what we consume 
and are a feedstock or an operating cost in many, in fact, most industrial processes. So higher oil and gas prices will be felt throughout the economy and ultimately will be passed on to consumers and, and appear in general inflation. But look, these things move in a cycle. The cure for high oil prices is high prices, um, i.e. High, pr- high prices encourage more supply and deter consumption, um, but, but it will take time. There's another aspect to the discussion. We're seeing growing geopolitical tensions with a focus on Russia. So what impact is this having? Geopolitics are a big influence in both oil and gas, um, from OPEC to Russia to Iran. Um, Russia is a big exporter of both natural gas and oil. The last thing President Biden wants is a high oil price, particularly as we go into the midterm elections later this year. And the last thing Europe wants is a higher gas price. So Look, frankly, I'm skeptical that sanctions will reduce the flow of Russian oil and gas, but certainly the fear and uncertainty do warrant uh, a bit of a geopolitical premium in, in prices. Thank you very much, Paul. Thank you. Energy analyst and portfolio manager Paul Gooden talking to me a little earlier. Anna, I just want to pick up on the last question I put to Paul. Clearly, geopolitical tensions are rising in Ukraine. What impact are you expecting the friction to have on markets? So it's um, obviously really difficult to say what scenario um, we are going to see unfolding. Um, I can't uh, actually see many upside scenarios. Um, so I think we are talking something in between um, full invasion and um, uh, some very small sort of border fights. Um, and I think uh, for me, from a macro perspective, it's about, as Paul says, what happens uh, to energy prices, uh, because that has implications uh, or further implications for inflation and, and for the squeeze in, in real incomes, uh, pretty much uh, uh, globally, but particularly in Europe um, and now potentially in the US. Um, and also what sanctions we might see, um, again, because that uh, will have implications for uh, the economies in Europe and beyond. Um, so for markets, uh, obviously, uh, volatility and risk premium. Uh, and But from the macroeconomic perspective, uh, it, yeah, it's about sanctions and where energy prices go from here. That's almost all we have time for. But before we end, it's time for 2022's first crack at our regular parlor game of hot cakes and hot potatoes. What would you like to buy like a hot cake and what would you drop like a hot potato? Charlotte, you first. What's your hot cake? My hot cake is gold. Um, I think we're probably closer to the end of this um, real yield rise than the beginning. Um, but, but but we'll have to see. Uh, and my hot potato is uh, European banks. Um, I think European banks have pretty much moved one for one with this um, yield move. Uh, and I'm not sure that growth concerns and a flat yield curve won't ultimately dominate the sector. Anna, what's your hot cake? Well, we talked about uh, China quite a lot um, and about uh, a potential further uh, easing in policy there. And I think we are close to to the bottom uh, of um, the cycle, at least in um, uh, China equities. Uh, and so I think um, 
it's uh, it's probably uh, an attractive entry point right now. Uh, and my hot potatoes would be uh, U.S. Uh, credit, particularly U.S. Uh, IG credit, uh, which is at you know still very tight levels. And we were discussing before that the Fed um, needs to see tightening in financial conditions, and that tightening can really uh, only happen or largely happen through uh, credit spreads. Uh, so that would be my uh, hot potato. Matt, now it's your turn. The hot cake for me would be um, Asia Tech. The uh, semiconductor um, issues are going to roll off. Uh, the, the China side of that trade in terms of the tech companies are incredibly strong and very cheap compared to the rest of the world. Uh, and then my hot potato would be um, UK equities. Uh, as a proud Brit, doesn't make me happy to, to, to say so, but... Uh, I think uh, the UK will struggle um, a bit domestically as well as um, some of the sector allocation there uh, over the medium term. That brings us to the end of this month's Rich Pickings. Thank you so much to my guests, Anna, Charlotte and Matt for joining me today and also to Paul Gooden. And thank you for listening. If you'd like to read more on any of the issues we've discussed, please head to your local Fidelity website or to fidelityinternational.com. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard, then please like, share and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The producer today was Holly Eastman with technical support from Alex Wilcox. From all of us at Fidelity, goodbye. This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied on by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without prior permission of fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please see our website.